The Russian invasion of Ukraine has upset long-standing geopolitical trends and the balance of global politics in many different ways. One thing it has revealed is the precarious energy situation that most of Europe faces as Russia cuts off its shipments of oil through the pipelines to the rest of the continent. European nations now face soaring energy prices as winter looms and people struggle to heat their homes. This all leads us to the question of how we got here and what could happen next. University, this is The Global Current. I am your host, Drew Starbuck. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation in Europe today, our analyst today is Kieran Buzonson. Hi, Kieran. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. And focusing on the international aspect today is Kasha Kostrava. Hi, Kasha. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. All right, guys, I want to get started with just some basic background of the situation and First of all, most importantly, ask, during the invasion of Ukraine, because of this invasion of Ukraine, did European nations see Russia cutting down on the supply of gas to this extent coming? This is a bit of a tricky question. I think some nations and some politicians did anticipate this, but maybe not to the extent that we're seeing. Um, Russia is responsible for 10% of the world's gas uh, supply and 40% of the EU's, so once the war started this was a tremendous breakdown the energy crisis was already kind of starting prior to the russian invasion post-lockdown demands were struggling to be met in the energy sector in general so the invasion of ukraine really did put a huge hit into the energy sector in europe in general and also like quite frankly it's part of the broader problem of i think a lot of european politicians, European countries, and actually European voters didn't expect to go as all-in on the sanctions regime that the West has gone, which is unprecedented, and, and actually about the limit that they can do. But I, I think it's part of that that broader broader issue there. Yeah. And you touched on this, Kasha, and you a little bit, Kieran, as well, into the next question I was going to ask of, like, the dependency of certain European nations on Russian oil previously for their energy needs, could this be an Achilles heel of sort in their support for Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, so in theory, this was the mentality, actually, that much of kind of the Russian calculus to invade Ukraine in the first place is based on. The idea is is predicated on the fact that because Europe, and particularly Central Europe and some of its main economies, like Germany, are so reliant on Russian oil for energy needs that they can kind of get away fairly unmolested by sanctions, you know, even invading and annexing parts of Ukraine. However, what they, I think, didn't expect is that surprising, frankly, <laughs> commitment of Western leaders to a sanctions regime and cutting off energy. So while in theory it might be their Achilles heel, Western leaders are pretty dug in now. There's not much room to step backwards from, at least at the moment. I mean, the, the gas supply is not fully off yet. It's going to happen, I think, later this month in October or November is when the, the full energy sanctions do go into effect. There's not much room to step back. So even if it wasn't Achilles heel, they're kind of dug in now. Yeah, and I'd like to add to that, like Kieran said, the full cutoff should be coming near the end of this month or the beginning of November. Um, we'll see what Russia does. They have already cut gas to various countries over the summer. If countries have refused to pay for the gas in rubles, Poland and Bulgaria are some that were part of this. They've already been cut in various ways, but the complete cut hasn't come yet. I see. 
One thing that I know you touched on earlier, Kasha, but I just wanted to have you repeat it for the listeners, is how much does Russia contribute to both the global oil supply and to Europe, and where do you get those statistics from? Yeah, the global supply, uh, Russia provides 10% of the global supply and 40% of the EU supply. I read this in various sources, Reuters, AP, foreign policy, all reported on it. I see. So definitely a major consideration that the Russians had in hedging their bets before the invasion, but now, as you elaborated on, Kieran, the Western leaders have dug in, and so we're heading to a winter in which Europe is cut between a rock and a hard place. Right. And then, I mean, also, it's important to state the role of 2014 and 2013 in Crimea as well. I mean, you, ha- you didn't really see any major energy sanctions, partly because you had the, at the time, construction of Nord Stream 1 and now the completion of Nord Stream 2. European nations didn't really do much um, at the time, and Russia was banking on that precedent as well as the increasing throughout the, the mid to late 2010s of Russian dependency, or uh, the dependency of European um, countries on Russian petrol and, and crude oil. I want to go further into that point, Kieran, on the Europe's predicament. In particular, mm-hmm. I want to first ask you about Central Europe's reliance on Russian gas in particular. I'm talking about nations such as Germany, Poland, the Baltic states, which are technically like NATO members, but still mm-hmm. reliant on Russia economically for their energy. Right, yeah. So, I mean, the region in particular that's the most hard hit is parts of Central Europe, so Germany, Czech Republic in particular, but also East Central Europe. So that would be Poland, the, the Balkan states, or Baltic you know, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, etc. I mean, Germany is probably the most egregious example with about 55% of their gas imports coming from Russia as of 2021, like at the height of the pandemic. Similar numbers in Poland and the Baltic states who literally share a border with Russia. Part of that's due to geographical proximity and part of that's due to market conditions where their alternative, which would be to import LNG, which is liquid natural gas or crude oil from the United States as well, is much, much more expensive than direct pipelines from the Baltic Sea from Russia or direct overland over um, country borders from St. Petersburg to let's say Tallinn in Estonia or Riga in in Latvia. Uh, And I want to contextualize this for you both and also for our listeners here. It's like fuel and gas are not just important for like transportation between cars and things, but also for cooking, for heating, for electricity generation. Gas storage, I know a lot of the European leaders are concerned about uh, storing up supplies for the coming winter now that they know that the sanctions are coming into full effect. What is the status of that at the moment? Yeah, so leaders wanted to have 80% stored by November. At the moment, they have 86% stored. So we are over the uh, wanted amount. That does not mean that European countries are going to be set for the winter necessarily. That is just kind of a statistic that they wanted to reach to, you know, kind of ensure their people that, hey, we're going to be good, but are they going to be good in the long run is kind of a different ballgame, especially as we see the war develop and as we see sanctions develop. Yeah, and to try and draw like a bit of an analogy for listeners here in the U.S., a, a decent analogy would be the the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in the United States. It's designed to be a temporary measure in case of emergency but it's not a long-term measure. I mean, to take the SPR as a particular example, we actually depleted about a third of it during high gas price rises during this just this summer and, and, and the early fall. So, I mean, this reserve that Europe has built up is a similar thing. It's not going to last long-term. Yeah. I think also another way to give a perspective or analogy on it for our listeners is like the climate change goals that the nations of the world set. They want to keep a global temperatures from rising beyond a certain percent because that they believe that level will not change life on the greater extent. So it's like these are goals that the European leaders 
set and are trying to meet because they feel that's what they w is necessary, but whether that will ensure less economic downturn on the behalf of consumers is very doubtful. I also want to focus on not just like fuel and gas of the oil things, but other industries that could be affected about this. Particularly, there's been reports of food shortages and the impact on the potential agriculture industry in Europe. I mean, I, I think probably even more prescient than the impact of natural gas or electricity on, on the agricultural industry, besides just fuel for combine harvesters and tractors and things like that, and heating for, for livestock in the winter, is actually fertilizer, which is a bit out of the scope of energy policy in particular, but fertilizer, which overwhelmingly came from places like southern Russia and Ukraine, has seen a massive contraction in global supply, being and impacting third world countries in particular, but also European countries, um, as there's a global shortage of, of fertilizer, which is critical in modern agriculture. Yeah, and another thing that comes from Ukraine that is we're experiencing shortages of lots of grains, wheat and such that is grown there. So, you know, not only are we experiencing fertilizer, there's stuff like that where, you know, bread and such like that is going to be produced at a shorter amount. Also, fruit and vegetable farmers in Northern Europe, particularly greenhouses, we use oils and natural gases to heat these greenhouses so things like fruits and vegetables which are critical to be grown um, in these facilities in the winter are going to be seen short just because we're not going to be able to prioritize those industries one thing i also want to look at when looking at your predicament and it's in the past when coming into this is Europe's reliance on gas or gas or at least oil from Russia but also they're turning down other energy sources. Do you guys have anything to elaborate on that? Yeah I mean the main problem is the the problem of nuclear <laughs> uh, with particularly Green Party politics but we'll get in that, into that a little bit later. You see countries like Germany, Italy, the UK, you know all of which are in the top four bracket for you know uh, the largest economies in the EU decommissioning, shutting down nuclear plants. Germany has just three left that are technically in operation. The UK has eight. Um, they were set to de decommission two of them, um, and Italy has a similar number. Those three plants alone in Germany actually contribute 12% of the entire electricity grid, despite being an incredibly small number compared to other countries like, like France, which are their immediate neighbors. That has had a huge effect on European energy policy because they're trying to fill the gap with two things. One, since they're decommissioning natural gas plants at the same time as they're decommissioning nuclear, they're trying to fill the void with natural gas imports, which as we said earlier, overwhelmingly are from Russia and then also from OPEC. And then also renewables, which quite frankly haven't really made the cut in terms of filling up the gap that's being left by the de combined decommissioning of natural gas, electricity generating plants and nuclear generating plants. I want to switch off of that just for a little bit, even though I think that's an important cure and that we'll come back to. Mm -hmm. What has been the political response on behalf of Europe to this current energy crisis? Are there been any noticeable political impacts in different nations? Yes, I mean, well, I'm not going to go out and say that energy by itself is the sole determinant of the way people have voted in recent elections in the EU this year. It's no doubt been extremely prescient <laughs> in polling numbers and in election results. I mean, earliest on, we see the French elections in, in April of this year, in the springtime of this year, where you have a massive rise, not just in far-right candidates, but also 
far left. You see this kind of general driving the extremes, and you see European politicians in France, in Italy, with the recent election of Giorgia Meloni and uh, Swedish right-wing coalitions. You see them seizing on rhetoric regarding cost of living expenses going up, and a lot of that has to do with energy. So it's been, a, 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 from a rhetorical perspective, it's been extremely effective for extremist politicians on the right in Sweden and Italy, but actually on the left in many other countries as well, and creating political opportunities and exploiting that in parliamentary elections, prime ministerial elections, etc. Again, you have the election of a, of a right-wing prime minister in Italy, along with a new right-wing governing coalition there in their parliament. Same thing in Sweden, where you have an alliance between the Swedish Democrats and the moderate party, which has broken the 20-year status quo of social democracy there. And you see similar polling in you know, the German parliament as well, where you see the um, CDU, CSU, which are center-right parties, trumping traditional social democratic parties um, and other leftist parties. So I see. So would you consider that there's been a general bolstering of right-wing populism as evidenced by the Swedish and Italian elections, and that both the current energy crisis and the support of Western nations and the cost of that for Ukraine has given them a boost rather than they would have initially? I mean, absolutely. I, nothing is going to drive people to vote more, for the most part, in my opinion, than cost of living. How much does food cost? How much does it cost to drive your kid to school? How much does public transit cost? What does your electricity bill look like? What does your gas bill look like? Right? These are all things that I think are much more prescient to most people's lives, politically, um, than most other issues. Yeah. I want to dive back into the energy prices because you make a good point, Kieran, and also government intervention of what like European governments are doing to make the burden of the larger and higher energy prices easier on the people, especially the exorbitant cost of electricity at the moment. Yeah, the cost of electricity is insane at the moment throughout Europe. So many politicians are kind of scrambling to justify this to their people obviously they see what's going on um in the eu particularly they've been debating a price cap recently on oil that may be a solution to kind of tame these prices but that has been a very highly uh, debated and heated topic a price cap would basically mean that they set a ceiling on for how much the price of oil natural gas coming in would be and as i said they've been kind of debating this for going on a month and a half in the eu so it's clear that it is a hot topic because it's kind of controversial in a way that um they're trying to decide would this scare away other LN lgn providers i want to go into more detail, Kasha, because you mentioned setting an EU-wide price cap that the mm -hmm. European Union has been in talks for that. Are those targeted specifically, that, that price cap, and like who are the nations that are concerned about that? So at the moment, the price cap is targeting imports from Russia. It will flesh out into everywhere, but the main concern is Russia with that. There's 15 nations at the moment that are kind of lobbying for this price cap and they've written a letter about it the nations would be belgium bulgaria croatia france germany italy latvia lithuania malta poland portugal romania slovakia slovenia and spain so these nations are it is going to be irrespective of origin but at the moment they do want to hone in on the russian gas with the war and everything i see 
Is there any role that international organizations such as the United Nations have played in trying to help out with the energy costs going on in Europe right now? I mean, frankly, there's not much they can do in terms of enforcement power. Again, typically, as you see from the United Nations, most of the, quote, support or criticism that they can offer is purely rhetorical. They don't have much enforcement power. OPEC just de declared that they're going to further reduce the supply, their production. So regardless of what price ceiling is instituted or who it's directed at, right? If you, direct, if you direct a price ceiling at Russia, you have two problems. One, OPEC is still lowering its supply. Oil is priced as a global commodity, meaning that it's the, the price of oil per barrel is determined by the global supply of that. So even if you target pricing at one country, the producers in Saudi Arabia, in Qatar, and the UAE, etc., that or Venezuela as well, right? Those will still influence the price, even if you're targeting it at one country. The other problem is with the sanctions in Russia is Russia is actively taking their crude oil, their petrol, selling it to India and China, who are to get around sanctions, who are then reselling it to the West <laughs> for huge profit margins. So it's not exactly watertight. And I want to get into that specifically, Kieran, of like the gas markets, and also you mentioned oil as a global commodity, which means that when there's effects globally of like from different entities or political entities, there's a lot of price fluctuations, especially as you mentioned OPEC. Exactly, right. So like, as, as I'm looking at it right now on MarketWatch, oil crude oil per barrel is trading at about $87, $88 per barrel. I mean, we saw a high this summer of 120, which was the highest it had been since the financial crisis in 2008. Essentially, because it's a global commodity, it means if someone enters or exits the market, regardless of what an individual country might be trying to purchase from another country, what they're going to be paying for per barrel is still determined by the total supply. So even if you might have antagonistic policy toward one oil supplier and a proactive one toward another, the price isn't going to be fundamentally that different. I mean, we saw oil prices come down actually quite significantly in the last month and a half. That's mostly due to the U.S. entering the market in force using our SPR, injecting a ton of supply with our strategic petroleum reserve. The problem is now that they're shutting that tap off and OPEC at the same time is drawing down their supply. As a global commodity, it's going right back up. Moving away from the economic side for just a second, I wanted to talk about also geopolitical ramifications, how they tie into this current energy crisis, because we have seen reports of other nations stepping up to supply oil to the European Union in the absence of Russia, particularly Azerbaijan. So I wanted to ask if like Azerbaijan stepping up as a supplier to the EU and the ramifications for the current conflict with Armenia. Yeah, so Azerbaijan has been pinpointed by a economists as like a potential replacement for Russia in the energy sector. Uh, they currently make 4.3 of oil um, in imports in the EU, which doesn't seem like a lot, but once you see how many people live in Europe, it is a lot. And four out of five of the top importers of Azerbaijani oil are EU countries, Italy, Croatia, Germany, and Portugal. So the country has stepped up, up its efforts in green energy and also exporting oil and natural gas as they are seeing this as a way to boost their economy and kind of step up, um, make more money, step up in the place of Russia. I, I was also going to ask you, Kasha, as the international analyst, do you see any ramifications for that, for the current Nagorno-Karabakh conflict with Armenia as an Azerbaijan feels more emboldened because Russia cannot project as much military power and also because they are stepping into an economic void that Europe needs right now that 
Europe is not going to be, they're going to be hesitant to confront Azerbaijan diplomatically because they're relying on them for energy. Yeah, for sure. The war did uh, complicate a lot of things in the attacks in general, as first of all, the access to Azerbaijani oil and natural gases, the pipelines and everything, it has kind of been more complicated to access everything. When physical warfare in Armenia proper stopped, the resources continued to be sold by Azerbaijanis regularly, so it's it's kind of a thing of the attack on Armenia proper put a bit of a stop or a damper on the exportation, but as it stands now, um, Azerbaijan is looking good. They're being really optimistic about their prospects in replacing Russia just because they've kind of kept this out of the conflict out of Armenia proper since the ceasefire and everything's going back to normal for them. I also wanted to ask you, Kasha, are we seeing any substantial impacts outside of Europe and the United States on the rest of the world, either economically or politically because of the current European energy crisis? I mean, we've seen here at home with gasoline and everything, prices have been noticeably higher, not only in the United States, but across the world. Europe has still been hit the hardest, but many do worry that low income regions as the war continues, as this general conflict continues, is going to be impacted the most. Places such as Latin America, Southeast Asia, and Africa, those are the places that economists are most concerned about outside of Europe. Okay, I kind of want to bring all our thoughts together as we come to a close in this episode and kind of just ask some summarizing questions for you guys to how we seeing this play out in the future in the present right now. So my question is, my first one, how do you see this crisis playing out as we approach the coming winter months? Yeah, I mean, so generally you're going to see a continuation of um, domestic policies in the EU regarding energy subsidies. So you see household allowance checks being doled out to European families. Germany, Italy, the UK, Poland, Austria, I think even France as well, all are offering these kind of small several hundred euro to, you know, usually around two to 500 euro subsidies to individual households to help with electricity bills. They've already called for voluntary rationing in a lot of these. I wouldn't be surprised if there was some involuntary rationing. Um, You're seeing the refiring of coal plants, of natural gas, the suspension of nuclear reactor uh, deactivation in Germany, the UK, and Italy as well. And I think you're actually going to see a substantial shift in European um, climate politics. I think there's going to be a huge critique, I think, of, of, of renewable resource, or renewable um, sources of energy, which is, I think, going to lend a, a larger ear to trends that have been going on in a- academia with regards to criticisms of the ecological movement in Europe, but that's going to, I think, come to kind of the forefront of, of EU politics and individual countries as, as kind of a more of a mainstream position, etc. So. Do you have anything to add on to that, Kasha? Um, I would have to agree with Kieran. A lot of the topics he mentioned, stuff I agree with, you've seen a lot of scholars and international analysts bring up renewable energy and energy in general environmentalism up into the forefront of their research of their policies recently so in addition to everything that he said yeah yeah and then that kind of leads into the final question that i have for you both before we wrap up here is the what are the long-term consequences of this crisis either politically socially economically for the European nations that are currently undergoing this stretch of their resources. 
I mean, generally, you're going to see huge reallocation of budgets toward industrial and energy policy. I think European countries are much better at actively managing that aspect of policy than the U.S. has, which hasn't really had major energy or industrial policy in quite some time. So I think the rhetoric around things like nuclear is going to change significantly. I think the time horizon for the shutdown of natural gas is going to be pushed back even more. And I think you're going to see a reorientation around climate language, which is not going to disappear in Europe, and it shouldn't, but a reorientation, I think, against a more practical and, frankly, economically sound and strategically sound, because this is a you know, this is a national security issue, having heating <laughs> and elect- keeping the lights on and electricity in general, right? I think you're going to see a large reorientation um, in, in kind of mainstream rhetoric around that. Yeah, in addition to that, I just think that there's going to be a lot of uh, reallocating um, where imports and exports are coming and going and things like that just to kind of nurture stability not only currently but in the future um a lot of politicians have been saying they want to drive away from russia in general just because of the unstable climate so i think in addition to everything kieran said there's going to be a lot of economic kind of replanning and resourcing well this has been a great discussion kieran kasha thank you so much for joining us and talking about this important topic today thanks so much for having us drew yeah thank you Joining me now to round out some other headlines this week is our news briefer, David Babigian. Hey, David. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on, David. So what headlines do you have for us this week? So the UN has made accusations that Russia is abusing Ukrainian prisoners. Italy has elected a new prime minister. Hurricane Ian tears through part of Cuba and is causing large amounts of damage to the southeast United States. And Nord Stream Pipeline leaks gas into the Baltic Sea. Some very important events to cover. Let's start with what is going on at the UN right now. The UN Human Rights Office reported on September 26th that Russian forces occupying Ukraine have been mistreating captured Ukrainians. The Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, also known as OHCHR, has accused the occupying Russian forces of extrajudicial executions, sexual violence, and other abuses towards captured Ukrainian soldiers. However, the OHCHR has stated that there are some violations by both sides in the conflict but have expressed particular concern towards the Russian treatment of the prisoners of war. Russia and Ukraine have both denied these allegations made by the OHCHR. A serious matter that unfortunately has consistently been in the news over the past six to seven months. And you mentioned the recent elections? I did, yes. Georgia Maloney has been elected the new Prime Minister of Italy. Her political party, Fratelli d'Italia, which translates to Brothers of Italy, won around 26% of the vote in the most recent election, which is much higher than the 4% the party received in the last election. Many people are concerned about her election because of the right-wing origins of her party. She insists that her party has, quote, handed fascism over to history, end quote. A political upset that has caught the world by surprise. And you also mentioned covering the current devastating impacts of Hurricane Ian. Yes, I did. Hurricane Ian started in the Caribbean just south of Cuba and has slowly been making its way up north. It hit the west coast of Cuba, where it knocked out power on the island. At least two people were confirmed dead when Hurricane Ian left Cuba. The hurricane ravaged the west coast of the state of Florida and the state of South Carolina. At the time of this recording, 109 people have been casualties of this hurricane. And we can just hope that the people of Cuba and the United States are getting the assistance that they need. And what was your final story? Uh, Earlier this week, an explosion was detected originating from the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and natural gas began escaping to the surface of the Baltic Sea. 
Less than a day later, the same would occur to Nord Stream 1. Currently, it is unknown what has caused these explosions, but many suspect that it was Russia. Vladimir Putin denies these accusations and says that the, quote, unprecedented sabotage, end quote, against the Nord Stream pipeline gas pipelines was a, quote, an act of international terrorism, end quote. Thank you so much for coming on, David, and keeping us informed. Thank you for having me. Now that is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew. Executive producer Jasmine Delion, associate producers Eric Bunce and Hamza Khan, technical producer Andrew Rakulia and Bobby Kyle, and of course, your host, Drew Starbuck. The Global Current is brought to you by Scene Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU or on streaming platforms such as Spotify or Apple Music. Until next time, thank you.